Hey everybody, before we get started, I just wanted to jump on because we are so excited to announce that Restore Registration is officially open. We can't wait to be with you again this year. It's going to be on September 5th through 7th at the Mountain America Expo Center in Sandy, Utah. That's the evening of September 5th and then all day on the 6th and the 7th. Three days of incredible speakers, poets, musicians, and artists. We really think that what we have planned will blow you away again this year, so you won't want to miss it. Go to faithmatters.org slash restore for tickets and we'll see you there. Hey everyone, just before we get started, I wanted to say that we know that this has been a really unbelievable week. And like you, we've been watching in horror as Ukraine has been faced with a brutal and unprovoked invasion. We're in awe of the courage of the people of Ukraine, and we stand firmly with them as we pray that freedom and peace will prevail. While we thought that it would be best to release this conversation with Terrell on a regular schedule, we just wanted you to know where our hearts are and that we're planning on bringing in some voices soon to help us think through these events. We're sending our love to each of you. Hey everybody, this is Tim Chavez from Faith Matters. For today's episode, we talked with Terrell Givens about his new book, The Doors of Faith. We know that many of you are familiar with Terrell's long career as a great thinker and theologian in our faith, and that you may be familiar with his many appearances on this podcast, both as host and guest. But for any new podcast listeners, we thought we'd share again just a little bit of his background here. Terrell is a New York native who did graduate work in intellectual history at Cornell and in comparative literature at UNC Chapel Hill. Prior to his current position, he was the Jabez A. Bostwick Chair of English and a Professor of Literature and Religion at the University of Richmond. He now serves as Neil A. Maxwell Senior Research Fellow at BYU's Maxwell Institute. Prior to releasing The Doors of Faith, Terrell published over 20 other books. He and his wife Fiona are the co-authors of four books, The God Who Weeps, The Christ Who Heals, The Crucible of Doubt, and of course, All Things New, which was published by Faith Matters Publishing. The Doors of Faith, which was published by the Maxwell Institute and Deseret Book, comes from a series of four lectures Terrell gave at BYU that were extraordinarily popular and well-received. The lectures then evolved into this book. In our conversation with him, Terrell shared so many insights, but some of the most memorable for us included how rationality can play a role in and augment our religious lives, how many Latter-day Saint doctrines once thought of as heresies are actually being embraced by the larger Christian world, and how faith can help, in Terrell's words, give us access to a broader reality. We really loved talking with Terrell, as we always do, and we really hope that you enjoy this conversation. Okay, Terrell, thank you so much for uh, for joining us again. Hi again. Um, we're very excited to talk about this this new book of yours, uh, The Doors of Faith. It, it seems like you're releasing a book, what, every every few weeks at this point? <laughs> it sometimes <laughs> feels like that, but I, yeah. I, I think the pipeline is now empty. Okay, okay. <laughs> well, almost. Um, maybe you could maybe you could start by telling us, this is this originally began as a lecture series at, at BYU, did it not? Correct. Could you give us sort of the background and how this, how this book came to be? Yeah, I was recruited by BYU, um, and after overcoming the fierce objections of my wife, we eventually... Um, <laughs> conceded to the inevitable. And uh, as soon as we came, the academic vice president, uh, wonderful man, John Rosenberg, recognizing right the extent of faith challenges for this generation and feeling that BYU needed to do more in a concerted kind of way to address tough questions of the moment, uh, asked me if I would be willing to give a series of four lectures on the topic of faith. Uh, and so I did that in the fall of 2019 in the Varsity Theater. And uh, the title itself, The Doors of Faith, what is that What is that in reference to? Yeah, that, um, to my mind, is just a really rich image that uh, I made the focus of this book um, by inverting the traditional meaning of that phrase, right? Luke talks about the doors of faith being open to the Gentiles, um, mm. in which he seems to be indicating that right, the gospel has gone from just the Jews now to the whole world. So it's like we open the doors to you. 
But it occurs to me that the most important thing about faith is that it opens the doors of our own mind to other possibilities. And so my, my basic premise about faith is that the world is way too multi-layered. Reality has too many dimensions to it to think that just science or just logic can capture the entirety of reality. And so faith to me is just a willingness to be open to other ways of knowing in addition to reason, in addition to logic. And I think in that sense, faith gives us access to a broader reality. Hmm. Okay. Um, there was a, there was a part I really, really love just the, I mean, this idea about openness and, and how an, an expression of faith can look like openness. But I just wondered, you know, is there a point where too much openness is actually just kills your faith that like, you know, is this, is this the beginning of a slippery slope to nihilism, you know? And I think we kind of have this, we entertain this sentiment a lot at church. And there's this idea that you have to be careful about what you what you read and like learning can be dangerous. And, and so, I mean, I, I'm curious if you, if you think there's ever a case where learning is dangerous. I think learning is always dangerous. Yeah. Ooh. <laughs> and I think that's, uh, we have to accustom ourselves to that early on. Um, and what I mean by that is, uh, you know, going outside of the garden was dangerous and discovering the principle of nuclear fission was dangerous and learning about the birds and the bees as, as a teenager is dangerous. <laughs> so learning always opens to us more possibilities and more options. Uh, and those options are always going to be divided between happy outcomes and tragic outcomes and so I think, yeah, we just need to, right from the bat, right off the bat, accept that learning is always a dangerous wow. enterprise. That's such a good point. You uh, you say it in that sort of same section that we should um, welcome, I believe is the term you use, challenges to our faith, which I think is a, uh, a viewpoint that traditionally is not shared by many within the church. I think many, yeah, many, you yeah. know, see those challenges as things to be avoided, to you know, say, oh, I, I can't listen to that or I can't um, can't read that, you know, that type of thing. You know, I think, I think that we don't often treat our testimonies as the organic things that they are. Hmm. And uh, so I talk a lot about epistemological humility. Yeah. And uh, what I mean by that is a recognition that our certainties are, should mostly be tenuous certainties, provisional certainties. And uh, so I, I think that we should be anxious for opportunities to deepen our commitments and our convictions. And that can only happen when they're challenged. Mm -hmm. And I think one reason why we suffer the defections that we do and the numbers that we do is because we have this language of certainty and wholeness that creates the false impression that once you buy those initial propositions you, you hear in the first missionary discussions, that's it. You've reached this, this point of plenitude and there's no reason to ever challenge or expand upon that. And uh, so, you know, I would make a distinction. I, so let me say this about faith, right? That faith is a complex word with a complex history. And in the Old Testament, what we call faith is generally more, more accurately translated as faithfulness. Hmm, yeah. Right. Abraham yeah. is faithful to God. He's faithful to the covenant, to the promises. And so faithfulness always has to do with the relationship. 
And it's about steadfastness and loyalty in a relationship. In the New Testament and subsequent theology, faith acquires the denotations of assent to a set of propositions. So in the church, it would be, I have faith, Joseph was a prophet, I have faith, the Book of Mormon was translated. And those are two different things, right? And they might be interconnected. I think they are, but, but they're separate things. So I guess I would say the first should be unwavering and unflexible. My commitment to Christ is permanent and entrenched and nothing is going to challenge that. But how I understand translation and what we mean when we say Joseph is a prophet and what true and living, those are all subject to negotiation and amplification and further exploration. Mm-hmm. So I don't think that challenges to one should affect the faithfulness wow. associated with yeah. the other. Well, yeah. I one of, in this in the same area you talk you talk about discipleship, saying that, um, and it sounds like I think this was based on what you said. Thomas uh, Traherne has written. Oh yeah, that discipleship should be offered both willingly and wittingly. Um, that and that reminded me, actually. I mean, I've also heard critics of the church say that all they want, you know, is for. Uh, people in the church to be involved with informed consent. You know, and informed consent and willingly and wittingly are essentially the same thing, right? <laughs> informed is uh, is witting yeah. and consent is willing. Right? Well, I think what I want to say about this, right? A lot of controversy has been engendered by uh, the topic of, well, what questions are worth asking? Yeah. And, yeah. and I guess the one thing that I would recommend is always make sure your questions are your questions. And too often, we're just kind of picking up other people's questions that suddenly, right, titillate us or or interest us. And it's like, well, what questions matter to you? So um, Christ's resurrection on Easter morn is an assertion of a historical fact. And if that's wrong, then all Christianity is just a pious fiction. But whether he was born in Bethlehem or Nazareth and whether the Last Supper took place the day before um, Passover, as John says, or on Passover as Matthew Mark, I don't think those are as high stakes. And so I think we have to make a differentiation between the kinds of questions and what's at stake yeah. and yeah. stop being distracted by irrelevancies and ask the, the real questions. Did, did Joseph Smith really have an experience of God? Did he really restore this incredible understanding of the nature of God and of human origins and destinies? Is there something about temple theology and and uh, the framework of the church that makes God present to us in a way that he wasn't before? Well, those are the questions that I think we yeah. have to be asking. So I, I imagine that this is a very, this is an experience a lot of listeners have probably had where you do think, you come across a question and maybe someone, maybe someone asks you or, you know, it just comes into your mind and you may feel curiosity peaked, but I think the overwhelming sensation for a lot of people is just dread and fear. Like they are so afraid to look into this question. And so maybe it is not the most, maybe it's not the most important question, but it's causing this real sense of disequilibrium and, and worry that, you know, if, if this, if the answer to this one question changes my relationship with the other, the other answers to the questions, yeah. then like, I have a real problem here. Yeah. Yeah. So I, I would love for you to talk about that. Like when you were in that situation, because I, I, I think that, um, there's a way to listen to conference talks and feel like what you're supposed to do is ignore the question or just stay away from it or, you know, focus on the faithfulness mm-hmm. and, and 
you know, focus on the covenant path and stop worrying about these secondary questions. <laughs> and think, and so what what I want to know from you is like, is there is it fruitful to to be open to those questions? Like just because of the fact that it's causing you fear and dread, like is it is is it fruitful to explore those? Well, and I think a lot of people feel like their answers to the first questions, the the primary questions, the things of most importance, they already they they're there because of where they were with the secondary questions. Like my my faith in God alone is based on what I believed or have believed all my life about Joseph Smith and the Book of Mormon. And so those attacks really do cause a domino effect mm -hmm. for a lot of people. Yeah, I think they do. If we never get to the point of relegating the role of the church and church history to the ancillary function that it was always supposed to provide, right? Mm -hmm. The end result is not supposed to be a commitment to the church. The end result is supposed to be knowing Christ. Yeah. But in our consciousness and our rhetoric and our language and our curriculum, we the church assumes such dominance that, you know, we should know something's wrong when the almost universal pattern is people say they're leaving the church, not not they're <laughs> yeah. leaving Christ. Oh, that's right. interesting. Yeah. So it would be a completely different matter if people said, yeah, you know, I just I just can't buy this resurrection anymore. Well, okay, that's at least a, a problem that is real yeah. and meaningful. But horses in the Book of Mormon? What? Wait, what's <laughs> that's yeah. what your life is built around? Um, and so, I think I think to that extent, it's a question of of kind of prioritizing what our religion should mean and mm -hmm. where where our focus should be. And is that is that on us or? Well, I think <laughs> yeah. I, yeah, I think it is large. I mean, there's no question that that um, we have reposed too much, um, too high of expectations in the institution. Um, I think the first leader to recognize this was, was Elder Packer. He spoke about this powerfully uh, many times back in the 70s and 80s. He would say, you know, the, the church is not a pharmacy mm -hmm. <laughs> that has a medicine for all your needs, right? We've got to have a degree of spiritual self-reliance uh, and, and independence, yeah. and the church is there as a resource. I think that's I, I think the genius behind the Come Follow Me program is I think that's the church's way of saying that we're going to reposition that responsibility in the home yeah, and in, and in the family. So, you know, Nathaniel, my son, likes to say the church isn't a Swiss army knife. Yeah. <laughs> but we think it's supposed to have a, a solution for every every problem and every challenge. Yeah. Um, so we need to think of our discipleship in terms of Christ. Um and I'm sure the institution can do more and we can do more as individuals to make that yeah. happen. Let's let's talk for a bit about maybe developing faith. I think the traditional way of looking at this um, from a Latter-day Saint perspective is, uh, you know, Moron Moroni's promise, um, read the scriptures, you know, ask, receive, and just sort of continue uh, in that in that cycle. Um, and I think that's, I, I, you know, I think there's definitely something to that. One of my favorite quotes that you brought up in the book was from John Milton. If one yeah. believes because his pastor said so, the very truth he holds becomes his heresy. Yeah. Uh, what do you think? Yeah. What do you think he meant by that? I think what he meant was that we have historically all the Gallup polls, all the Pew surveys—they all confuse affiliation with conversion. Mm -hmm. Right? It's like, do you attend church? And that's supposed to be a sign of belief. And I think, contrary to what the, kind of the standard line is, I think. Belief has become too easy in the modern world. It hasn't become too hard, right? You can't run for president if you're not a Christian, for mm -hmm. heaven's sakes. So to pretend that it's 
this obstacle that we have to, you know, in the secular. No, no, you, you still get a lot of social capital for believing. Well, for affiliating. And sure. I guess that's what I'm saying is that is that we have to make our faith our own. It we have to we have to own it. And I think I think one one obstacle here is that is that I think all faith has to be costly. If it's not costly, then it's just a kind of casual assent to a set of propositions. And that's how most of us experience the church most of our lives. It's comfortable, it's a socially you know, congenial place, and our family raised us that way. Um, and until we know what we're willing, what price we're willing to pay, uh, either in terms of capital or in terms of personal investment or spiritual agony or or, or questing, then we haven't made it our own. I think that's what Milton was saying. Yeah, was um, if you believe the right thing, or if you assent to the right thing, but it isn't an act of vital faith. That, that doesn't count for anything. It's just you, you know, you just won the lottery. You get to heaven because you 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 picked the right winner. Right. Yeah. That's that's a pretty. Do do you think that that belief and faith are useful as synonymous or roughly synonymous terms? You know, um, one problem with trying to define a term like faith is that it presupposes there is a right answer. Yeah. Right. <laughs> and we shape vocabulary to suit our needs, uh, and so for me, it's most useful to think of faith as a response. And that's how I would differentiate faith from belief. I can just choose a belief at random or because I've read or heard. But if we really believe in the divine presence, if we really believe there is a personal God and a spirit who make their will and natures known to us, then I think there is this omnipresent uh, voice and, and so can I tell a story? I'm going yes, to tell please. a story. So back before Abraham Lincoln even gave his, his inaugural address, there was a Frenchman working to see if there was a way to record the human voice. This is before Edison. And he perfected this machine. This is actual fact. He perfected this machine. What do you call the, the autophonograph, something mm. like that. And it pretty much on the same principle that Edison would later find, right? That it was this needle and it kind of like a seismograph. It would record perturbations caused by sound waves of the human voice. It worked perfectly. The only problem was he couldn't figure out a way to decipher it. <laughs> so he could record you. And so you've got this sheet with all those yes. lines on it, but what, what to do with it? And so he gave up and he died. Just a few years ago, in the early 21st century, there were some scholars researching in, in the Paris archives, and they came across these, these graphs. And they kind of figured out what they were. And they just thought, well, this is interesting. And one of the guys goes home, and he can't stop thinking about this. Then it occurs to him, we could digitize those lines and convert it to sound. Yeah. And so he goes back the next day, and they digitize these, these, these records. And they play it, and it's just kind of this indecipherable static. And he's about to give up, and then he thinks, maybe, maybe we're playing at the wrong speed. So he alters the speed, and suddenly you hear this Frenchman singing You're a song. Oh, my gosh. Wow. And uh, I think that that's just the most perfect wow. kind of trope for, for the divine voice. It's always there. But how do we discover a way to be open to that? Yeah. And I think faith is that gesture of responding 
and mm-hmm. saying, I hear something and I'm going to risk, I'm going to give the benefit of the doubt because what I hear is beautiful and praiseworthy and reasonable, if not certain. Yeah. And I saw, so, oh, excuse me. No, that's, um, that's it. I, I saw this morning that Richard Rohr um, has a, had an article on faith and he said, bas- I think something like basic religious faith is the affirmation that God is inherent in all things and that, and that this is all going somewhere good, mm-hmm. you know? And I, that's, that's something that really resonated with me Yeah, because like the list the list of propositions, you know, that doesn't always, that doesn't always work for me. You know, yeah. it depends on the day, yeah. I think. Yeah. But like, I I have felt deep in my being the difference between an affirmation that this is all going somewhere good and that it's all just meaningless. You know, yeah. the uh, the nihilism that creeps in yeah. at times. Yeah, well, I, I like that. I'm not, you know, he... he He's an imminentist, right? So mm. yeah, there's a sense in which God infuses everything. Section 88 maybe. But but I find that the one thing I grow more and more certain of as I, as I get older is that this is all going somewhere good. Mm-hmm. But what I love about the gospel is it explains why. Um, it gives us a way of making sense of pain and suffering and education uh, while convincing us that there's a rational grounds for believing that this is purposeful and meaningful. And I think that's one of the great glories of Joseph Smith's vision, right? Is that it isn't this test right? in this really kind of, I think, just this terrible way, like we're, like we're trained dogs and we're going to get a treat if we jump <laughs> through the hoop. Um, no, we are, right? I mean, there are two kinds of tests, right? In education, there's the there's the, the summative test to just see, did you pass? Mm-hmm. Or there's the formative test. Okay, let's find out what you still need to need to do. And so I think, right, Joseph Smith taught us, no, this is a formative test. Yeah. So um, there's reason to be optimistic only if God has a way of bringing the entirety of the human family back to him. So short of that universal accessibility of salvation, then then it isn't necessarily going in a good direction. Yeah. I love, um, you talk about, is it John Harris, the poet? Yeah. Who, who talks about how the role of parents and teachers is to work themselves out yeah, of the job. Yeah. And by extension, you know, isn't that God's role to, to, um, become less and less needed. And that was really profound. Like, I, I love that idea because it kind of leaves some room for this idea that, that uncertainty could be a part of our real development. And, yeah. you know, we expect, I expect, more certainty, yeah. You know, yeah, like the closer yeah. to God I am, and I loved this idea of flipping that paradigm upside down and and thinking, you know, what if, if that's God's objective for me to be independent? Yeah. Then I think this yeah. is an idea that takes us onto really thin ice, right? And so I think it needs to be <laughs> carefully okay. dealt with. And so let me let me offer a few points of clarification, okay? Because uh, this is great. We we talked about this in class yesterday. So students said, so that means that if I have my own personal witness, I can ignore everything, right? The church teaches or <laughs> right scriptures say. And so I don't think that's quite the independence we're talking about. But um, here's here's what I think we are being told. Look, I I had a friend, right, who once boasted in a in a in a sacred meeting talk that that they even prayed about the color of the van that they were going to buy next oh, wow. right? <laughs> well it's not that example itself that is problematic it's what it represents about a certain stance that we think god has everything plotted out and we just need to to follow that script that has been written for us that's calvinist right that's predestinatarian yeah. 
And and I think that God, it isn't that, look, when we get to celestial kingdom, are we still going to be asking, okay, what are the laws I need to, laws are to shape us into God's nature. Laws are to train us in having the same appetites that he has, to love yeah. the same things that he has. So my understanding is that the point we want to attain to eventually is that we love the same kinds of things he loves. And so we don't always have to be asking, should I do this? Should I do this? Should I? Yeah. It's, it arises out of a nature that is God-like. Yeah. And so I don't think that's going to happen anytime in this life, but I think that's the long range idea. And if we have that in mind, then it, it gives a whole different feel to the way we're relating to God. He's not sovereign and we're the subjects, right? He's the father and he's trying to teach us to acquire a kind of independence and autonomy and to assimilate those values. Yeah. My dad growing up always talked about playing scales versus playing music. Yes. You know, we need like some yeah. scaffolding and like some structure, but then it's to make it so that, I mean, the point is not the scales. The point is to play something beautiful. Yeah. I think that's a we have to great learn skills analogy. First, yeah. yeah. And I think, I think once we get to that point, God wants us to make our own music, not, not just play his. Right. Yeah. So maybe not the color of the van, but should you get a van at all? Maybe is the question. <laughs> That's right. Um, I, so you, um, there was a very interesting section of the book where you talked about rationality. I think yeah, the world, yeah. I mean, much of the world, I, I hate using that phrase the way we use it often, you know, as a pejorative, but um, many, many uh, modern thinking people uh, use rationality as the primary, if not only way to find truth. Um, if you go and listen to the the mystics, then um, they're they're talking about other ways of of finding truth. I've never thought of you as much of a mystic, but I got a little bit of maybe <laughs> mysticism as as I read through this. Well, I think there are two problems with rationalism, with overhyping rationalism. One is every evolutionary biologist, practically in the game today, is saying, "Look, evolutionary biology gives us no grounds for believing that mm. we have access to truth. Our minds and brains developed as survival mechanisms to ensure our propagation." Whether what we see as truth corresponds to some ultimate reality is beyond the scope of evolution. So, right, in, in kind of empirical, scientific uh, ways, we have no basis for having faith in rationality as a key to absolute truths. But then I think more importantly, empirically, we just know that's not the case, right? Yeah. I'm assuming you asked um, for Are her we, hand in marriage. That's correct, yes. Did you make a list of all the pros and cons and do a kind of cost-benefit analysis? And <laughs> do you want me to answer that honestly? <laughs> I kid. No, of course not. Of course so, not. So, right, in life's most important transactions, we don't mm. rely upon pure reason. Now, certainly there are rational factors that come into play, right? <clears throat> if she were already married and had 11 kids, then that might have been a reason to, to, to pause. But we, 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 we respond to abuse, and holocausts in a way that doesn't derive from rational analysis, right? I mean, Hitler's rational analysis made perfect sense, right? Darwinian science, mm -hmm. let's just eradicate, right, what we think are inferior. And so we know that. We live by forms of knowing, ways of knowing that transcend the rational or supplement the rational. So that's all I'm saying. Mm -hmm. I'm not a fideist, right? Fideism is the belief that we don't trust reason 
and we just rely on on faith. Sure. No, I, this is one of the remarkable things about the language of the Doctrine and Covenants is how often it conjoins heart and mind, heart and mind. And I think that's same intuitive faculties and rational faculties. They yeah. have to be synthesized. So that process that I brought up earlier, the the sort of stereotypical Moroni's promise is that a is that a rationalist method in some ways? Like what I'm really doing there is uh, running an experiment and gathering evidence and basing yeah, my yeah. belief on that evidence. Well, it's interesting, that, right? In the 19th century, right? America kind of comes late <clears throat> to the enlightenment, but there is a sense of enlightenment religion in the 19th century. And so most early Mormons thought of Mormonism as a rational religion. Oh, interesting. Because it relied so much upon personal experience. Mm-hmm. And so there's, there's no doubt that um, Alma speaks in, in similar language, right? Yep. Experiment upon the word. So I think, you know, what, what defines the scientific method is not that it relies upon evidence or experience. That's a, that's a red herring. What defines scientific method is the way in which, um, way in which evidence is construed, mm-hmm. what counts as evidence, and is the experiment replicable in a public way, right? So things like that tend to have shaped the, what we call the scientific method. Um, but we, we've lost the argument if we already enter into it, embracing the language and the definitions of a, of, of a materialistic culture. So we have to mm. believe that what I'm experiencing in my right response to prayers or pondering or reading the voice of a prophet or Julian of Norwich, that that's real, it's discernible in Alma's language. So it certainly constitutes evidence. Yeah. I'm curious more though. I mean, I feel like rationality has has expanded my spirituality in a lot of ways. Like I, I feel like my faith, it feels deeper and more solid because I because I looked into rational problems, you know, like like I, I think that my faith was a lot more fragile when I was afraid to to learn about things that were not necessarily feeling things. Like I, I did really have big, scary questions about church history, but learning about that, you know, and it gave me a more solid trust. And so, so, and you, I, I mean, as an actual scholar, like I'm curious how your, how rationalism has either, like, do you feel like you believe in spite of it or, or that it is somehow like feeding your spiritual? Oh, life? absolutely. It feeds it. Right. So let me give you two examples. And this is kind of circling back. I realize now we didn't really answer your question about, <laughs> about right. Dangerous questions and fear. So when I set out to write my second book in Mormon studies on the Book of Mormon, I decided, look, this had never been done in an academic way. There's only propaganda on both sides. And so I thought, so how does one write for a university press a book about the Book of Mormon? Yeah. And I thought, well, a reception history would make the most sense. In other words, we just talk about it in terms of how was it understood and reviewed and treated yeah. and the influence it had on religious culture. So that's how I proceeded. But in order to accomplish that, I had to deliberately try to read every single attack on the Book of Mormon that had been written between wow. 1830 and, and, and the present. Now, that's probably not possible today, but it was closer to possible in 2000, the year 2000. Sure. And so many friends were alarmed at this, right? You're going <laughs> to expose yourself to every attack on the Book of Mormon. And my answer was always the same. It was if the Book of Mormon can't withstand that kind of scrutiny, it doesn't deserve my my loyalty. Mm. And so I have to believe that. And I think as Latter-day Saints, we have to remember the words. I think it was, I think it was Elder Irene's father who said, you never have, you'll never have to believe anything that isn't true. 
Hmm. And so if we just if we just take that as, relax and relax. <laughs> yeah. And and don't be afraid. Yeah. Um if the church can't withstand the toughest scrutiny and investigations, <clears throat> then it doesn't deserve our discipleship or our loyalty. So yeah. I take it as a given that it can and that it will, and I've put that to the test many times. Now, when I wrote my two-volume history of, of Latter-day Saint theology, right, again, I'm writing for an academic world audience and an academic press, so there was nothing devotional uh, or evangelistic about that work. It was a, a strictly kind of rational study and organization and systematization of the history of LDS thought. And there wasn't a page I wrote that didn't enhance my faith and belief because of what I saw as the most fully rational theological system that, that mm. I've ever encountered. I mean, right, I love the Catholic Church, wonderful tradition, beautiful tradition, beliefs, people. But come on, in the year 2013, for the very first time, they issue a papal statement yeah. on the hope of salvation of children who die and baptized. Where's the rationality in a system mm. that assigns infants to, to damnation? So that's what I write. Yeah, it seems to me that, yeah. that, that, that the universality of the plan, the yeah. coherence of the pre-existence with the post, there's, to my mind, it's intellectually symmetrical, coherent, yeah. and, and consistent. And there are little, you know, little rough edges here and there. Yeah. But overall, yeah. it's well, astounding. And, and at some point, it seems like your own experience will start becoming part of this rational argument. And I, I liked when you talked about how, you know, I'm, I'm sure you've had multiple people come to you over the years about the book of Abraham. And you mentioned in the book that that is a deal breaker for a lot yeah, of people. Yeah. And so I like that little example because this is a, this is a book that you and Fiona have written so much about and, and, um, and the book of Moses. And that's where we get this God who weeps. And, and so at some point it's like that, that is so much the God I believe in. Like that can keep this rational for me, even if the papyrus was a funeral text, you know? Yeah, and, yeah. and I like, I like this idea that like the, the most important question eventually comes back to my experience with the church and how it is functioning as a vehicle to connect me to God. And, and I think what I, what I was learning from that section about Book of Abraham is just, you know, you, you can really get in, in the, in the muck of apologetics and why well, call it, that's probably going to offend people, but you know, like it, that was not satisfying to me, but what, what tastes good to me is a God who weeps. And so I, I like this idea that we don't have to be afraid of how the book of Abraham or whatever the problem is, how, however, those things came to be that those can have problems. And what is important to me is the way it connects me to God. And yeah. Yeah. And I would just add to that, that, that the problems with the book of Abraham are not the problems with the text. They're the problems with the narrative we have constructed around the text. Right. Yeah. <laughs> and yeah. so that should be the first thing that we suspect yeah. is, oh, maybe we didn't correctly understand right. the process. by which Maybe that, Joseph that didn't came. correctly understand maybe the Joseph process. Joseph didn't. Yeah. And that, yeah. right, that horrifies some people. And I said, look, Paul said he couldn't tell if he was in the body or out of the body when he had his visions. Yeah. So clearly there's something about the nature of revelatory experience yeah. that is not always kind of fully dis, you know understandable right. in, in our in yeah. terms it, it seems that you are affirming that it, for you at least the uh you know the church the book of mormon the pearl of gay price joseph smith they all they need to and can stand up to the highest level of scrutiny but it's probably important to define the bar by which we're measuring that right like if it, if the bar is infallibility or inerrancy or or whatever kind of like what with what you were talking about before the church um it probably it may not stand up to the highest level of scrutiny if it is 
the central part of our faith, of, of our spiritual life. That's right. Right. If That's it's right. inerrancy, yeah, is what everything hinges on. Yeah. Yeah. yeah I, I get that. Um, one of the one of the really interesting parts of the book for me um, was that you talked about how traditional Latter Day Saint heresies have become uh, orthodoxy in in larger uh, Christendom. And you had several examples. Would you mind talking about a few of those? I thought it was fascinating. Yeah. So um, let me let me go through a short list. So Latter-day Saints are absolutely unique, I believe, in the Christian world in believing that Adam and Eve's expulsion was an act of mercy, right? mm -hmm. that it wasn't a jealous, angry God, and that, that there was some divine plan behind their ascent rather than fall. Right. Just today, a friend sought me, sent me this quotation from a very recent commentary on the Bible by, you know, a non-Latter-day Saint scholar. He said, traditional interpretation, especially Christian, refers to this act of transgression as signaling the fall of man, though the expression nowhere occurs in the text. But if we read anthropologically, and I'm a wisdom-seeking spirit, what we have here instead is in fact the rise of man to his mature humanity. That's fascinating. Hmm. So it's still wow. not universal, but you know, when one hears... I think a lot of gestures of that move in that direction. Yeah. Uh, teachings about original guilt, right? In the in the 18th century, it was said by one theologian that that was the linchpin and the most fundamental principle of the Christian religion was acceptance of original guilt. Wow. And and to that, I I only have to respond. Try to find somebody today in the Christian world who affirms original mm -hmm. guilt. You'll find a few diehard Calvinists, mm -hmm. but the vast majority of Christianity has long ago jettisoned original guilt for Adam's sin. They don't talk, they don't have terms oh. of original guilt. Man becoming God or what we call theosis. Christianity Today ran an article a few years ago saying we have to recover the early Christian teaching of, of theosis. The Eastern Church, the Eastern Orthodox Church never abandoned it. They still talk about it regularly wow. and, and, and frequently. Was it origin in the early Eastern Church that had a, a, a theosis uh, theology? Absolutely. Okay. Yeah, wow. and so did many of the early church fathers um, although, you know, they, they didn't render it as explicitly as we do and not in the exact same terms, but some conception of a divine yeah. ascent. Um, life as educative or a tiered salvation. Mm -hmm. The Catholics have abandoned limbo. Uh, and Pope John Paul II said things in public before his death that indicated he thought the Catholic Church had to find some way to be more universalist in its oh. Salvation, evangelicals, very prominent evangelicals like Rob Bell have sold millions of copies of their books by challenging the limited salvation of evangelicals and saying, we have to get this wrong. His famous quotation was, do we really think somebody's going to go to hell because a missionary got a flat tire? Yeah. Right. <laughs> so the whole Christian world is, yeah. is revisiting mm -hmm. this question. Uh, yeah. The father suffers and has pity and compassion that even has its own name as a heresy, right? Um, Petropassianism uh, and an Scholars now say that in the late 19th century, there was a sea change, right? In the creeds, mm -hmm. God cannot have passion. He's without passion, which means he can't be moved by our experiences. And now you've got books on every Christian bookshelf, the most moved mover, God the vulnerable, <laughs> right? And, yeah. and so sea change in that direction. Joseph Smith was the first to articulate it in scripture and canonize that teaching. Divine corporeality, the fact that God has a body. Mm -hmm. recent book just came out by the German scholar Christoph Marshies. It's making all kinds of waves in it. He says it was only with the advent of medieval Christianity that the idea that God has a body became scandalous. Wow. So it's now recognized that 
lots of the early Christians taught and believed this. Stephen Webb wrote a whole book on this, Heavenly Flesh. Wow. Uh, we can talk about temple worship and temple theology, right? And uh, Christians have yet to build their own temples like Latter-day Saints, but Christian scholars, by and large, are now saying we have to reevaluate the role of the temple in early Christianity because clearly in the New Testament, the apostles are still worshiping there. Wow. Yeah. So we have to rethink what was its role and what might it be for us. Yeah. Fascinating. Yeah. You have such a beautiful way of saying this, and I don't know if I have it in my notes, but you, you, you say that the restoration is the most... Morally, oh, I'm going to slaughter it here. Do you know what I'm talking about? You have a, <laughs> yeah, I don't the remember most exactly. morally compelling, <laughs> oh, intellectually satisfying, intellectually there you satisfying, go. and aesthetically appealing. Yes, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah it's beautiful. Right. Yeah, I really believe that's true. Yeah, um, I have one. I feel like that feels like a good place to end, but I have to ask you about this because this was my favorite part. You talk about how you know evolution in any context, biological, spiritual, any kind of evolution is fueled by tension, and so. Um, I wanted, I want a pep talk for anyone who is having a hard time with that at church. You know, I think we talk about the Sabbath, like, you know, we want it to be a delight and we want our church experience to be restful and it should, we want it to be a respite and like a, a, a couple of hours of recovery. But I think for a lot of people who are experiencing any sort of dissonance, those two hours at church might be the most painful of their week. And, and it might be the time when all, what's that amazing Brigham Young quote you, you say something about like, uh, all of your faults will be made manifest or something to the, uh, the point of the gospel yeah, is to make all yeah, your faults manifest. Yeah. So like that, ex that's an, that's a painful experience. If you're having the experience of your, all of your faults being made manifest at church, you know, what do you say to somebody who's just like, they are dreading Sunday? Yeah. Yeah. I, uh, I don't know if I have a good pep talk um, <laughs> ready for that. Um, I, I think, you know, what has worked for me, cause, cause uh, I'm not the most sociable of people, right? My, I don't know about that, Terry. Uh, in small numbers. My wife is, right? Fiona is. And uh, my daughter has chastised me. She says, Dad, you, you write so much about Zion and community, and yet you're antisocial. <laughs> and I said, yeah, but I recognize my deficiency and I'm working on it. So as long as we recognize our deficiency. But I, I think, I think, um, you know, there was a, there was an experience I had just this past Sunday, right, where this fellow I hadn't seen in church before in priesthood meeting, he must have raised his hand 30 times. Oh. And we were off to the side, and the teacher never saw him. Oh. And so finally, he just muttered something angrily, and he got up, and he, and he was gone. And I couldn't find him. I, I, he was gone. And, I, you know, so many of us go to church feeling down or depressed or lonely or unloved or inadequate. And uh, so I have tried to, to remember how worship is used in the New Testament and the Old Testament in both times, right? With Abraham's sacrifice and with the, the Magi. Uh, to worship means to give something of value to somebody else. And so I think that there is always an occasion when we can find somebody at church like that guy. Mm -hmm. um, and if the only experience you try to have at church is to try to make somebody else's experience a little bit better, it's a small thing, and it may seem trivial, but that's that's what I try mm. try to do. I, I don't expect the lessons are going to be interesting, even my own, um, <laughs> or that the talks will be good, but I take the sacrament, and I, I try to look for somebody that, uh, that might be having a, a harder experience of it than I am. Um. So... That's beautiful. beautiful. Yeah, thank you. And I feel like your whole the whole chapter about openness 
would be really applicable here too. You know, if that's the thing that's uncomfortable, that going in with this, this idea that openness is always life-giving, you know, and it's okay to, it's okay to just relax into the feeling of being really uncomfortable about what anyone is saying, you know, yeah. what any, what any speaker yeah. or, or whatever's happening at church, you can just, you're, it's a practice in being open. Yeah. 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 Thank you. That's Okay. I think that's a good place to, to end Yeah. It. Anything else we missed? Don't think so. You were comprehensive. We loved this. Is, I, I feel like of all the things that you've written on you and Fiona both that this idea of, you know, sort of defining faith has been the most meaning for, meaningful for me personally. So it, I'm so excited about this book. Like, it's just, it's so great to have a collection of all of these things that we've heard you say over the years and and written, just have it all together. So thank you so, thank you so much. Appreciate really it. Excited. Thank you. Thanks, John. Okay, thanks so much for listening, and we really hope that you enjoyed this conversation with Terrell Gibbons. And as always, if Faith Matters content is resonating with you and you get a chance, we'd love for you to leave a review on Apple Podcasts or whatever platform you listen on. It definitely helps get the word out about Faith Matters, and we really appreciate your support. Thank you again for listening, and as always, you can check out more at faithmatters.org.